This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Police protests that occurred in various Canadian cities over the weekend were supposed to be about systemic racism and policing. Obviously, what happened in Montreal and the vandalism, the toppling of the statue of Johnny McDonald uh, garnered the most attention. And has really, I think, focused the conversation narrowly on the legacy of Canada's first prime minister and how he should be honored or remembered. So I think really these protesters did themselves a disservice because we're not talking about some of these other issues, which do need to be discussed. Issues around racism, issues around policing. Uh, to that end, there's a really interesting uh, new piece out today from the McDonald laurier Institute. Uh, looking at these issues and how we go about fixing it. So putting constructive solutions on the table, to me, is way more productive than knocking over a statue. Uh, Joining us to talk more about this piece uh, is its author, uh, Professor Christian Luprecht, joining us uh, from Royal Military College and Queen's University, and also a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Dr. Luprecht, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon. Uh, let me get your thoughts first of all. We'll get into this study, but obviously, with what happened to the Johnny McDonald statue over the weekend in Montreal, and clearly the McDonald Laurier Institute uh, being a part of uh, this legacy in Canada, where in, in many ways we we do uh, honor uh, our our founding fathers. Your thoughts on this complicated legacy and, and what happened over the weekend? Well, I think Perry Bellegarde uh, um, of the AFN I mean, has said it months ago already that what we need to do with statues, for instance, is make sure they represent the different perspectives on history and that we also have a plaque there that represents the Aboriginal perspective um, on the key founding father of this, uh, of this country. And so it's an opportunity in a democracy to have debates about social history and that there's always inherently differing um, interpretations um, and uh, that there are communities that were simply ignored or left out of the founding consensus. Um, but I think it's also a reminder that uh, the struggle for the equal application of the rule of law, which is, of course, the key founding revolutionary principle of the French Revolution, um, and the equal and equitable application of human rights remains a work in progress in this country uh, and has taken decades and will likely uh, continue to be um, always a dynamic effort at which we have to work at, and we need to remind ourselves as Canadians, because internationally, we like to show up as good, smart Canadians about how beautiful and and harmonious our society is, um, that uh, while I think we do better than many other societies uh, in the world, uh, we still have uh, hard work to do to make sure that both in perception and fact, uh, the rule of law and the criminal justice system applies equally to all citizens and all communities in this country. Yeah, that's an important point. Uh, and, and further to that, and I mean, as you noted your piece, obviously there, there are some significant differences between Canada and the United States. I think in a lot of ways, conversations in the U.S. have spilled over to Canada. But I mean, all that being said, as, as you just alluded to as well, it's not as though Canada doesn't face its own challenges. 
Yeah, and we can track this empirically, right? So for the first uh, five months or so of the year, if you look on Twitter, so policing-related tweets about uh, 5,000 or so a day, and then uh, um, with recent events in the United States, all of a sudden it's been about 28,000 a day, and it's it's roughly stayed there. So we've had about a four-and-a-half times increase in uh, in, in the number of, uh, of, of tweets here um, on the uh, on the go. And so, you know, the public is seized with this issue, but uh, as people always say, never let a good crisis go to waste. Um, and ultimately, uh, the point that I make in the study is that many of the framework conditions that we set for policing aren't set by police. They're set by the public through their politicians, through city councils, through provincial politicians, uh, and through federal uh, and through uh, through the federal government. And so, if you want things to change, uh, ultimately we need to change the constraints and the framework conditions under which policing is carried out. Um, and as we know, politicians can sometimes be loath to act um, if there's not a genuine, clear signal by the public. Uh, that they expect change. And I think the, the crisis that we're seeing is a growing divergence of public expectations and police practice. Um, and this gap continues to grow. And I think if we don't address this, uh, it will lead to ever more serious tensions and a genuine crisis. And I think we can already see this in the way some individuals uh, and perhaps some subparts of communities attempt to delegitimize law enforcement and police services. And sure, not everything is perfect, but in a democracy, uh, we ultimately need um, a police to um, apply the same laws that the people have made through their legislative representatives. And so if we delegitimize the instruments that we have in place in part to apply those laws, then as a society, we are all uh, worse off. And let's not forget that there are adversarial countries that want to stoke precisely this sort of turmoil and polarization within our societies, because it is ultimately they who benefit uh, if they can see that democracy is unworkable and how deeply divided we are. So, yes, we need to make inroads on this particular issues, and it's an issue that should, uh, with which we should all be seized, but we should also make no mistake about it uh, that there are adversarial forces that are looking to capitalize um, on what is currently happening in Western societies with regards to policing. Mm-hmm. Well, when it comes to policing, too, and and I think it's important to, to narrow in on, on what it is we're trying to fix. What What is the problem that we're diagnosing here? Because as you point out in, in this study, I mean, if, if the issue is systemic racism, then that's not specific to the police. The police are maybe a reflection of, of broader society. If it's an issue of uh, use of deadly force, well, you know, the numbers suggest that that's uh, not a big problem in Canada. If it's a lack of transparency, there are issues there. If it's with regard to police perception and how police are perceived, there, there are issues there. What, what is the problem we're trying to solve here, in your view? That's a good point to start, that uh, police have thousands of interactions with the public every day. A tiny fraction of those involves any applications of use of force options. And the tiniest fraction of those results in, 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 in a... Um, Uh, in instances that might be highly controversial. So it speaks by and large to the professionalism of the frontline members. And one of the points that I try to make is that uh, the anger that is directed at sworn members that are out on patrol 
is misdirected if it is directed at individual members of police forces. Yes, there's probably the odd person who is not doing as good a job as they should. But by and large, I would say uniform members in this country try their very best under very trying conditions. But they are subject to a system with, where, where leadership, management, governance, accountability, transparency, these are all broader systemic challenges. And these are challenges where, for instance, issues such as racism remain ingrained in some of the institutional DNA of institutions such as the RCMP. And so if we want the frontline members to do a different job and ostensibly a better job, then we need to make sure we actually change the conditions under which they carry out that job. And in police organizations today, the bureaucracies are excellent at reproducing themselves. And what we see in police organizations is senior leaders who come up through that organization and they end up leaning and leading and managing the way they themselves were led and managed. So we change our police chiefs and RCMP commissioners and we expect a different type of outcome. What's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome. And so if we want to see real change, I think one of that is we're going to need to civilianize the leadership and administration of police organizations and make sure we leave police in charge of police operations, but get police out of human resources, finances, policy, and so forth, uh, and this way drive some elements of civilianization um, among, among the sworn members. Let them focus on the things that we've trained them to do as opposed to trying to manage issues um, for which we don't have the proper um, educational and experiential uh, quality type of training in Canada. Maybe we also need something akin to the UK, which now is a police college, um, similar to the, uh, the, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, similar to our law societies. Maybe we need a professional uh, accreditation society that sets standards so that police can get better um, at also providing the level of professionalism that the public is expecting, uh, but that certain parts, certain communities certainly are not seeing or not seeing to the extent that they're expecting uh, for the significant amount of money that municipalities invest in police services. Right. And, and there's another issue, too, and you point to it in, in your piece here, because, um, you know, there, there are a lot of issues that, that go unaddressed in society, social issues, economic issues, and, and the consequences of ignoring those issues often fall to police. And then police are sort of associated with those problems and, and maybe it exacerbates some of these issues. Um, are we putting too much on police officers? Look, our society, increasingly the modern welfare state, is becoming about risk mitigation, mitigating all sorts of risks that citizens face. And so if you look at the number of calls that go to police for things that nobody would have called police for, or very rarely, uh, even 30, 40 years ago, we see a vast expansion of uh, the types of calls to which police are expected to, um, uh, to provide, uh, to respond. And look, I mean... If, these, if we could have talked your way out of this call, presumably you wouldn't have called police to begin with. So it's going to be a difficult and a challenging, intense situation. Um, yet at the same time, uh, society has a much lower tolerance for violence than it did 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. This is also why we call police more frequently. And yet, of course, then we somehow expect police to uh, deal with incidents that have the potential for violence or f- active violence present in sort of non-violent ways. And so these 
are sort of the fundamental contradictions in terms of some of the developments uh, of society. Add to that the decline of indifference sort of for uh, authority sort of more general within society. And I think we're simply expecting too much from police on too many types of different calls. And I would say, you know, if, if politicians today said to police, look, stop report, uh, uh, responding to mental health calls, uniform members would say, that's just fine with us. This right. is nothing yeah. but trouble for us in terms of, uh, of what we're expected to do. Um, but if they said, okay, stop responding to mental health calls, who else is there to respond at 2.30 in the morning in Edmonston, New Brunswick, um, uh, in a town of 16,500 people? There is only one service that's there 24-7, and that's the police. So we also need to have a conversation about how do we make sure we provide other adequate services for individuals and communities that face considerable social, economic, and other types of challenges, rather than simply letting police pick up the pieces uh, when municipal, provincial, and federal governments decide to underfund or defund services. Well, ultimately, that issue, like so many of these issues, it all sort of points back in one direction, doesn't it, to uh, a, a real lack of political leadership. And it's ultimately going to have to be about uh, getting more people to talk to one another in terms of the different agencies. Um, uh, there's not going to be more money in the system. And in Alberta, you're the first people in Canada, of course, to, uh, to experience and know that on a daily basis, uh, tough economic times. So if there's not more money, then we need to make the money that we have and the services that we have work as efficiently and effectively as we possibly can. Uh, and as I often say about public services in Canada, we have very expensive public services that by and large deliver pretty mediocre outcomes for the public. And so I think there's an opportunity to rethink here, not just policing, but general, generally how we deliver services um, uh, across provinces, how we coordinate across municipalities, provinces, and the federal government uh, in order to change, uh, to, to optimize outcomes. But of course, there are many vested interests um, that don't have an interest in much change. Police associations, first and foremost among them, because, of course, they like their nicely, highly paid uh, senior positions within uh, uh, police organizations. So if you're going to have fewer positions or less money, then that also means uh, a fewer nicely senior paid, uh, paid individuals. So these vested interests exist across the entire system, um, and they can solve these coordination challenges on their own. It's going to require municipal, provincial, federal politicians to step in, get people to talk to each other, uh, and optimize the system. But those tend to be losing conversations for politicians who then tend to get maligned by those vested, uh, vested interests. And so this is why the public is really going to have to uh, ratchet up the pressure on politicians to effect genuine change, uh, because if we don't, we're going to find ourselves in, in, in an even worse crisis in terms of civil police relations uh, a couple of years down the road than we already are. We'll leave it there. Uh, this piece is called Systemic Racism in Policing in Canada and Approaches to Fixing It. It can be found at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Professor Luprecht, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Likewise, all the best. That is Christian Luprecht. He's a senior fellow uh, at the McDonald-Laurier Institute, also professor at Royal Military College and at Queen's University. Well, the federal government had taken some flack uh, recently, some criticism for, for not moving quickly enough to to secure vaccine supply once it's available. I, I think we're now moving in that direction. Announcement today from the federal government that they've signed agreements with two potential vaccine manufacturers to ensure that there are doses available in Canada. And once a vaccine gets approved, there is going to be, uh, as you can imagine, a huge demand for that. 
And I think there's going to be some legitimate concern about, well, who gets it first and what is it going to mean country by country? Uh, but as we await a vaccine, in the meantime, how do we best address, how do we best contain this pandemic? Certainly testing has got to be a big part of that. And I think we're getting to the point now where there appears to be more options at our disposal when it comes to testing. Now, Alberta's certainly done a lot of testing. Alberta's been a leader when it comes to testing. Things maybe have, have been a little bit stalled as of late, although we did see some big numbers late last week. Uh, but some potential breakthroughs on the horizon. Now, for anything to be adopted here in Canada, it has to be approved by Health Canada. There was a story today in the Globe and Mail uh, that Health Canada has decided uh, that it will not approve at-home testing. Now, the health minister came out later and said, well, no, that's not the case. We certainly are prepared to approve this kind of testing if it can be demonstrated safe and effective. So joining us to talk more about uh, some of these issues here, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Isaac Bogosh. He's a, an infectious disease uh, specialist and physician based out of the Toronto General Hospital and the University of Toronto. Dr. Bogosh, great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me back on. Uh, the first of all, and I know you're watching this story today regarding uh, at-home testing and how Health Canada's uh, approaching this question. A little bit of, of confusion, I think, some mixed messages. What, what, what are you able to deduce at this point? Yeah, I was a little uh, disappointed when I saw this earlier message from Health Canada saying that they weren't really amenable to these home-based tests. We don't have these available yet, but they're certainly in development and they're probably coming through the pipeline at some point and at least be open-minded to to using these tests. I think there's tremendous potential uh, for these tests, but uh, they said they weren't really going to be amenable to them, which I thought was a bit shocking. And then uh, I'm really glad uh, Minister Haidu uh, clarified this uh, stance uh, a bit later in the day today and said, uh, you know what, that's that's not entirely accurate. Um, we're open-minded. Uh, clearly, these tests have to pass uh, the appropriate regulatory bodies, and of course, Health Canada is independent. There's no political pressure on them to approve mm -hmm. or 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 nix any any potential tests. But uh, at least they, they can have a look at them and see if uh, if they meet the appropriate standards to be implemented in real world settings. What what do you see as the potential value of this kind of testing? Why, why would it be such a game changer? Okay, this truly would be a game changer. You know, you would say, oh, is this it? Is this the game changer? But a home-based rapid test would really be a helpful, helpful tool in the toolkit. And here's why. They're not really there to answer the question, you know, do I have COVID-19, yes or no? They really would be used to identify people who would be most likely to transmit the virus. Right. We know that some people have this infection and they're just not likely to transmit the virus or they might have the infection and have recovered and aren't really contagious to others. Now, if you get a PCR test, it requires a lab. It'll tell you if the virus is there, but it doesn't necessarily tell you how contagious people are. With a rapid home based test, it, it answers the question, should I go to work today? Yes or no. Should I send my kid to school today? Yes or no. You know, and basically, if you imagine you put a bit of saliva in a perfect world, you'd use a saliva-based test. You put a little bit of saliva on the test. If it's green, you're good. If it's red, you're not. It's like a pregnancy test. It's exactly yeah. like a pregnancy test. Anyone who gets a pregnancy test done, you know, that doesn't say home run, you're pregnant. It says, huh, I probably shouldn't go and drink three gin martinis tonight, right? Yeah. I probably should go see my primary care provider for a confirmatory blood test to make sure that I'm pregnant. And that's the same with these home-based tests. 
you know, I shouldn't go to work. I shouldn't, my kids shouldn't go to school. I should go get a COVID-19 test. That's what they do. So you can imagine, like, from a back-to-school standpoint, from a back-to-work standpoint, you could get people going back to work or back to school safely. You'd keep COVID-19 out of the workplace and out of the schools. It'd be fantastic. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it would be. I, I agree. I mean, right now we have, as you mentioned, the PCR test, and that's kind of the gold standard. That is the most uh, sensitive test. So you're, you're, you're most likely to, to find cases with PCR tests, since that's why we've used it. Um, so explain where, you know, why that test is so sensitive and the difference between what a PCR test can, can pick up and what a less sensitive test uh, might be able to pick up in terms of a viral load. Yeah, well, I mean, the PCR test is going to pick up anything, right? And the problem is it requires processing, right? Yeah. You either have to have you, you have to have a, a a big, well-funded lab that can do high volume and high throughput PCR tests. You know, you swab a million people and get those tests processed quickly. Now, you've also seen different models of PCR tests come out, so uh, analogous to like, uh, God, I'm not a coffee snob, but you know those uh, like Keurig. Is that the right brand? Yes, right. You know, the, yes. yeah. right. You have like a little box and a little capsule, and you put the sample into the like the, into the box, and it'll take a little bit of time and process the test. You can probably do ten or twenty tests a day and, and something like that, right? It still requires a test and samples and processing, but you can do it in a little mini device that you could have, for example, at the workplace. But like what, I, what I'm really talking about is something way more simple, like a home-based, you know pregnancy test there's no technology there's no processing you literally put a little bit of saliva onto a test strip if the stripe appears you got you should think about covid if the no stripe appears you're you've got the green light to go to work and to go to school you know easy to do foolproof takes 10 seconds easy to get a sample easy to get an answer so they just they they, you know there's a lot of overlap but they sort of answer different different questions in a way and they 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 almost serve different purposes. There still is a need for PCR tests. There still will be a role for antibody tests. But really, if you want to think about how can we easily facilitate the safe return to work and easily facilitate the safe return to school, an inexpensive, rapid point-of-care test would certainly be an extremely helpful tool to do this. Yeah, it would. Now, on the vaccine front, the announcement today that the government has signed a couple of uh, agreements with those that are at least hoping to be uh, vaccine producers, um, you know, we're, we're st- there's been remarkable speed. Let's let's you know be clear about that. And there are a few candidates that are in phase three trials, um, so that's encouraging. Your your thoughts on where things stand and whether you're concerned that maybe it's all moving a little too fast. There've been some signals from the FDA in the U.S. that they might be prepared to approve something even before phase three trials are complete. What are your thoughts? Okay, so a couple points. One is. You don't you don't approve something before you have a phase three clinical trial like that's just insane and the wrong move right you, you just can't do it Russia did it uh, and I think that was that was a that's a big mistake um, you learn a lot from a phase three clinical trial doesn't mean they can't be done efficiently rapidly and with the highest standards of quality but they still need to be done because they really answer the question you know to what extent is this going to protect people? And it answers the question, what's the safety of this vaccine? I mean, you're giving it to thousands and thousands and thousands of people. You can, you can address those questions. Uh, so you, you really need those phase three clinical studies. Uh, that, that, like, that's extremely important. Now, the fact that Canada has now 
we have now four companies that we have agreements with, Moderna, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, and Novavax. And this is fantastic news. Like, uh, this is fantastic news. It's, it's uh, you know, we know that many of these vaccines are going to fail. It's very plausible that one or perhaps more of those uh, vaccines that Canada has agreements with will not make it through phase three clinical trials. Or they'll just be unsuccessful. Or Health Canada will look at the data and say, you know what? It's just not up to not up mm-hmm. to standards. That's that's expected. But by you know hedging our bets and 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 and, and focusing on multiple candidates, I think we put ourselves in a good position that at least hopefully one of these, maybe more, will be successful. And like we have to remember things like you know Johnson and Johnson knows how to make a vaccine. You know Pfizer knows how to make like these are huge companies that have a tremendous successful track record developing and producing vaccines. Like you know. I think we're. I think we're, we're. You know, these are the right arrows pointing in the right direction. This is a good. This is a good time. And, and, and not to blabber on and on and on. But to your last point, people say, "Well, is it moving too fast?" I mean, what do you want, right? Like, this is what happens when you fund science. When you give science unlimited brains and unlimited resources, it's pretty incredible what you can do in seven months. So I'm not. I'm not entirely surprised that we're here. It's just you can really answer these big, important questions if you dedicate the resources to, to answering them. That's a great point. we got to leave it there. Dr. Bogach, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate it. Have a great day. You as well. That is Dr. Isaac Bogach, infectious disease specialist at the University of Toronto, Toronto General Hospital. And yeah, there, there are some really exciting things happening when it comes to vaccine development and, and also on the testing technology side, too. So that's encouraging. But I think at the same time, we do need to temper our expectations uh, about how soon all of this is going to arrive. And yes, unfortunately, there is a bit of a political dynamic in the United States, and I'm sure the incumbent would love the game changer in October or even early November being able to say, look at that, we've got a vaccine. And if there are problems, well, that all comes after the election. And so maybe he's prepared to, to, to live with that. I don't know. So a vaccine... In October, November, or even December, not likely. But 2021, yeah, I, I think it certainly looks very promising. The requirement to wear a mask on board a flight in this country is not a new requirement. Unfortunately, though, it's going to take a new response to enforce. Unfortunately, there seem to be some who feel that maybe the rules just don't apply to them. And uh, as such, that's causing problems. It's causing problems for the travelers. It's causing problems for the industry itself. So if you're not going to be a part of the solution, maybe just get out of the way altogether. If you don't think that you have to wear a mask, then don't fly. Don't buy a plane ticket. Now, fortunately, for the most part, people understand this and are prepared to be a part of the solution ensuring that travelers feel safe and welcome and ensuring that the airline industry can continue to recover. Because certainly in terms of sectors hard hit by this pandemic, airlines are right up there. So as I say, it's not a new requirement, but at WestJet, there's going to be a new approach to this. As of September 1st, the airline is taking a zero-tolerance approach when it comes to those who refuse to comply with these masking requirements. Joining us to talk a bit more about uh, these challenges and uh, some of the changes coming next week. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Richard Bartram. He is uh, with WestJet, Vice President of Marketing Communications. Richard, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Good afternoon. 
All right. So tell us a bit more, I guess, about what what led to the decision to bring in this new policy, why, why it's necessary. Yeah, you've teed it up nicely. And it's exactly that, that, you know, the vast, vast majority of people are willing to play along and are, uh, as you know, as Canadians, we tend to be rule followers. And you have people that are willing to wear the masks. But we've had, uh, and this is truly a handful over the more than 700,000 people who have flown with us. But to give you a bit of context, we have 181 aircraft in our fleet. And there's roughly 150 of those parked on the ground. And we're slowly now starting to see a recovery, if you will, where more and more people are now looking to travel. So as those people come back now, having not been on a plane since uh, March or even earlier, we want them to understand that their health and well-being and the safety and well-being of them is something that we are taking very seriously. So that if there is somebody that is not willing to don that mask, for the collective well-being of everybody on board that aircraft. We want that person to understand, and it will be through an escalated process, um, that they uh, they won't be able to travel with us for 12 months. So what's going to be different then as of, of next week? So, yeah, what's different for, as of next week that, it, it, again, it's a, it's a bit of a, an escalating process. And think of it almost a, um, in soccer where it's a yellow card, red card. So if we find ourselves on a flight where there is a, a guest who is now uh, non-compliant, so we will have that first conversation with them to say, can we ask you to, uh, to put your mask back on? And here's why. Uh, if they continue to be non-compliant, then we will take it to what the next level would be to say there are uh, consequences in the event that you are non-compliant with what is a, uh, a federal reg- regulation from Transport Canada. And this is the last uh, warning that we will then be uh, giving you. And at that point, if they are now uh, non-compliant, um, they have now um, um, forfeited uh, the right to be on a WestJet plane for 12 months. So um, we may then continue on to destination as opposed to diverting. Um, and then once arriving in destination, even if that person is connecting onto a subsequent WestJet flight uh, somewhere else in our network, uh, they won't be welcome on that aircraft and, uh, uh, and won't be welcome for 12 months. Uh, and so that is to send the right message for uh, all those people who are looking to travel once again. And these are certainly challenging times through COVID-19. And we don't want to now add to that stress that there may be somebody on board who um, is not willing to comply and could get away with it. Uh, So in terms of noncompliance, though, as you say, I mean, ideally planes wouldn't have to be diverted, that they would continue to their destination. Would would it take some more extreme sort of circumstances to, to have a plane turn around? Yeah, absolutely. So if we're, if we're still on the ground, it's still, uh, and recognizing fully that that would be tremendously inconvenient for everybody on board, that if we're still on the ground and we're now turning around to go back to the gate to uh, to disembark the, the guest who's not willing to comply, that's going to be, you know, 20, half, 20 minutes, half an hour for us to get back up in the air, and that's okay. Now, if we happen to be at 40,000 feet uh, at altitude and somebody is now non-compliant, that doesn't necessarily mean we are going to divert unless we reach the point that we that we have somebody who is now uh, unruly to the point of uh, jeopardizing the safety and well-being of our crew and the other guests on board, at which point uh, for us that would be uh, a decision we would look at at that point to determine do we need to divert, get ourselves on the ground as quickly as possible, and then have the authorities take over. Now, the, the, the regulations uh, from Transport Canada require anyone over the age of two to wear a mask. So you, this, this obviously are, are still rules that apply to children. How are you going to approach this, though, when, when it comes to kids? Yeah, and, and certainly it's going to be with a delicate hand. And this is, 
the WestJet brand has been about that caring message versus this being draconian. So even as I as I say the words that we're going to ban somebody for traveling for 12 months, it doesn't feel very WestJetty. But at the same time, recognizing that there's an opportunity for the parents to work with us to explain to that child that there's a there's a reason uh, that it's so important. And I think a lot of parents are going through that already right now as they're explaining uh, as children are going back to school or back to daycare the importance of masks for the community uh, the community at large. And then we will work with uh, with those parents as best we can. Right. And so there would be a big difference, I assume, then, between a situation where the parent's trying to convince the child to wear the mask versus a situation where the parent is, is part of the problem. Or the parents not yeah, complying, or the parents is fine with with the child not complying. Yeah, and 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 recognizing that it, you know you're exactly right that this is going to be a, a challenge for for children to un, to un, to understand. But even if you look at it's been uh, more than seven hundred thousand people who have traveled with us since this began, since we started bringing our network down March twenty third, uh, we've only had thirty cases of of non compliance. So by and large, we are seeing that compliance, and we don't um, necessarily expect that to change. But as more and more people do travel, we want them to travel with the assurance that there is uh, an extra step in place that will have people take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's necessary. It's unfortunate that it's necessary, but I think it is important, isn't it, that, that people feel comfortable, that people know that they're fellow travelers, that we're all kind of in this together, we're all trying to be a part of the solution. Uh, so that this needs to be addressed, doesn't it? Well, well there you go, Rob. It's, it's that we all need to be part of the solution, and this is an opportunity, uh, and it's and, and it's, it's tough, right? I, I, right? You know, it's, a, it's an interesting journey um, on an aircraft where um, you relinquish, relinquish control to the airline. You know, we... From a safety and security perspective, we tell you when to put the seatbelt on and when to take it off and when you can stand up and when you can sit down. And now we're going to add to that list. We're going to ask you as part of what is the regulation to uh, to wear the mask. And and then just go back to there has to be, if somebody is not willing to participate in the collective well-being of everybody on, the, uh, on board the aircraft, then there has to be consequences so that somebody can... Uh, be non-compliant and simply get away with it. I just don't think lands well with people who are now thinking about traveling once again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, I wanted to ask you, and I don't know if this is is part of the changes announced, but there, there's also, I understand, some changes coming with regard to contact tracing, the the ability to be able to contact people if necessary. Uh, what, what's changing there? Yeah, and so we so the contact tracing is uh, is also an important component of this, so that if we find ourselves in the event. Uh, that there may have been somebody on a on a plane who subsequently tests positive for COVID-19 and they alert the public health authorities, they in turn would like to be able to notify everybody on that aircraft. And we do have that information. We do have been providing it to the um, to the health uh, authorities or the public health authorities across the country. But in some instances, there's been less than complete information if that information had not been provided by the guests uh, uh, when they checked in. So as of uh, next week as well, what we will be uh, implementing on the website. If you check in on your app or if you check in on uh, on the website, uh, you will be uh, forced before you can go forward to the next le- uh, to the next step to provide that contact information. And then we'll have it in the kiosks as well uh, for the week after next. We need to reprogram all those kiosks, uh, kiosks across the country so that in the event that we now have a flight where that's uh, been the case, there's been somebody with COVID-19 on board, we want the public health agency to be able to contact those people as quickly as possible. And this uh, by getting the uh, the right contact information over to the public health agencies faster, uh, we hope we can uh, provide people with the confidence to uh, to begin traveling once again. All right, sounds good. Much more at WestJet.com. Richard, appreciate the update here today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rob. Appreciate it. Take care. Uh, that's Richard Bartram. He's uh, VP of Marketing Communications with WestJet. WestJet.com. More details there. 
So this is pretty straightforward. Right. And obviously, WestJet is, is under policies from Transport Canada. Uh, but WestJet as a business is, is also taking it upon themselves to enforce it in the way that they see fit. Because I think this is so important when it comes to, to giving people the confidence to fly again, bringing back that business to a hard hit industry. Uh, and, and the selfish and entitled few who think that they matter more than all of that. You don't. Get over yourself. So if you're not going to follow WestJet's rules, then you're not going to be flying on WestJet. It's just that simple. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.